I come from slaves and sharecroppers and domestic workers. And I know that because of their persistence, I am. And my requirement and my responsibility is to keep trying. I may not fix everything, but I am damned if I do not try. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are now 90 days until the most important election of our lives. With your help, we will win all the houses. Joining us today is the incredible Stacey Abrams. She's got some important calls to action for all of us, some recommendations for fighting voter suppression in your community, and some advice for the Swing Left Fellows that we could all benefit from. That's right. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We We Win. Mariah, inside 90 days now. The clock is ticking. If you've been waiting, I know people, people who are, I mean, like, I, I think people are starting to get annoyed now with this. If you've been waiting, now is the time to jump in because everybody's been doing something. Like over the last few years, everybody's been doing something. So we know That's people true. aren't waiting anymore, but um, now is, now really we, we kick it into high gear. But we do see a lot of people who, you know, in September, jump in that, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden are, are woken up to the election. You know, maybe something that gets people excited that haven't haven't gotten involved yet is this thrilling veep stakes that's going on. Yes, we are constantly refreshing Twitter and whatever news source to see if Joe Biden has announced his pick. I think he's picked someone. Do you think he's picked someone by this point? I think so. I think it's going to I think we're we're days away. It's possible we talk about this and it it breaks later this afternoon or I something. Know. You know. I'm so excited about all of the people who've been mentioned on his short list. We can't go wrong. We're going to have an excellent veep candidate along with uh Joe Biden. I am so frustrated though by the amount of sexism. Like we have an opportunity to have a, we are going to have a woman vice presidential candidate by all indications. And people are whining and complaining about women being too ambitious, women not having families and therefore not being like qualified candidates. And that stuff drives me crazy. Yeah. And it's coming, it's coming, the call is coming from inside the house. It's our own people who are saying these things. The Republicans don't have to attack us. We attack ourselves. It's like Taylor Swift said, you need to calm down. Mariah, you just need to calm down. (laughs) I'm being a hysterical woman, but I have, but I have, I think I have very good reason to. And I got to tell you, I worked for Kamala Harris for a couple of years um, Mm -hmm. and and worked on her Senate campaign. And I remember being at a dinner party in the run up to the election, telling people what I did and reminding people, like reminding people to vote. What do you need here? What's your plan to vote? Doing that whole spiel. And someone was like, 
I really like Kamala, but she's never had children. So how could she possibly be a politician (sighs) that could represent me? And I was just aghast, like as a person without children that hurt me, Mm. but it was also like so stupid and short-sighted and demeaning. And I can tell you from personal experience that Kamala Harris loves children, cares about children, lights up when she's interacting with children and has always had like a really intense strong and well thought out plan for how we improve the lives of children. We could not have had a better candidate for children running for Senate at the time. And yet here was someone who was like, Oh, this lady hasn't popped out a kid. So what are, what are you going to do? <laughs> and yeah. then you re- you really risk losing someone good by having that. I guess everybody's got like, you got to have a reason to vote, but does it have to be so stupid? Yeah, and I remember you talking on this show um, previously about at least one of those interactions that Kamala had with a little kid and how, how moving that was for you uh, on that campaign. Uh, as, uh, you know, as a white male, I apologize. You know, if I, if, if my, if I was ambitious and spoke my mind loudly, uh, people would say, man, there's someone who knows what he wants and is, is going to go get it. Right. (laughs) But people um, would feel comforted by that. Yeah. Yeah. He, exactly. He's not, he's not wishy-washy. He knows what he wants. He's aggressive. He's going to do it. He's going to get things done. And, uh, of course, when that same same stuff comes from women, then it's you have to calm down. Yeah. You're you're rubbing people the wrong way. Don't be too ambitious. <laughs> ladies. Well, the ladies are going to continue to be ambitious and they're going to prove everyone uh all these idiots wrong because as we all know, uh they are leading the way in this resistance too. Um these volunteers, women from you know, women's oh march gosh. and yes. all the volunteers, it's like 80% women are leading the resistance. So, um they're going to save us and I'm excited about whoever that female vice president is going to be. That'll that'll be exciting. It will be exciting whether <laughs> she's got kids or ambition. I mean, they're all they're all ambitious. Anyway, does Karen Bass have again. kids? Does... Uh, Karen Bass. Um, one of the things that she has in common with Joe Biden is that she lost a child. Um, oh gosh, I didn't so know that. she uh, she did have a daughter who was uh, killed along with the the daughter's husband in a car accident when uh, Karen was in the California Assembly and. Karen continued to work incredibly hard, even as she was as she was grieving um, the loss of her mm. only child, um, which is you know a, just Unspeakable, a testament unfathomable. to unfathomable and a testament to how hard she works and a, a connection that she and and Joe Biden share. Wow, that's so powerful. She's she's amazing. Um, I know uh, we're both a little bit biased, but I, I just, it's just incredible. <laughs> um, speaking of incredible, strong, 
women who will speak their mind no matter what people want them to do. <laughs> uh, You're not lying. <laughs> that's right. We have Stacey Abrams on our show today. She talks about all of the things that are really top of mind for all of our listeners um, and mm -hmm. should be top of mind for everyone in our country right now. And that's the voter suppression going on. That's the uh, census and the importance of that and how that the, the end date for the census has actually been cut by a month now. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit in our calls to action because we have some specific actions we want everyone to, to do around that. Mm -hmm. But um, election integrity is under attack. Trump is double downing. Double downing? No, I'll go with it. Trump is double downing Makes his sense. attacks on this election on vote by mail, saying that it's going to be rigged. And then he tweeted out about potentially postponing the election. He can't Not do that. Happen. Not going to happen. I was thinking about this this, this morning. I've heard uh, zero policy, even hit the normal campaign, normal, quote unquote, normal campaign from last time. It was like the wall. I'm going to build the wall and do that stuff. Like all he talks about now is that the election is rigged, that the election is going to be fraudulent, that um, the results can't be trusted. He's lost, basically. And and so now it just comes to undermining the election, mm -hmm. intimidating voters. And mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the way that he's going to try to win, continuing to stoke blatant racism and fascism. So, so that's what we have to fight against. Good times. Good times, everybody. It's going to be super fun. Um, again, the the formula for beating that is uh, two or threefold, basically. But the first thing that we all need to do is get three friends to volunteer. Be specific about it. We we had this great training event that Mariah and I both participated in. We were talking about it, the train to win last weekend. Mm -hmm. And we had the vote tripling people there. You know, So think about three people that need a hand to get to the polls, that probably need a little extra nudge. Write their names down, be specific about who they are, and reach out to them. And then think about three people who you think would volunteer, who maybe haven't volunteered yet, and write their names down and reach out to them. Because what we need is an overwhelming, we say this every week, but it's true, we need an overwhelming tsunami to erase any potential uncertainty about the result of the election. It's got to be massive. I like that because it feels very doable. Like so often it's like, oh, you know, get, try to get a hundred people together for a house party. And I'm like, I don't know a hundred people. I don't think I've already asked a bunch of people for favors this year, but I can, I can think about three people who I could help out by making sure that they have a plan to vote and three people who have been asking me how they can get involved. This is very doable. Totally. It's pretty darn simple, and you can see how it would make a huge impact. Because if you have three people volunteering, and then they apply the same tactic to what they're doing. So those three people, they get three friends. It's like a Prell commercial. All of a sudden, everyone has beautiful, luscious hair, and you're saving democracy. Do you think people will remember that Prell commercial? From I was going to say, <laughs> uh, you, you threw it way back there. And so on, and so on, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> but we get the point. Get the <laughs> I point. hope so. Me and my references. <laughs> um, so that's, that's our call to action. And also, uh, we mentioned the census. 
you need to call your representatives, your uh, congressional representatives, your senators, and mm -hmm. uh, they have the power to restore that extra month that was taken away for, for the census. And Stacey Abrams talks more about the importance of that. But uh, So you listen to that in the interview. But we need you to call those representatives. And since we're making phone calls while you're calling your representatives, it's now been 83 days since Congress passed the HEROES Act. And ah. we are like at a stalemate with the political posturing going on in Congress right now, specifically from the Republican caucus in the Senate. So many people are saying we don't have a plan or Congress isn't acting. That's not true. We passed the HEROES Act. The House of Representatives passed the HEROES Act 83 days ago. And Mitch McConnell has not taken it up. They are putting woefully inadequate uh, responses, including funding for military, funding to remodel the White House. While people are losing their homes, they want to set aside some of this money to remodel the White House. It's ridiculous. It's abhorrent. So while you're calling about the census, make sure you tell them to pass the HEROES Act. Right. And uh, just as a reminder, the HEROES Act is, a, you know, the stimulus bill to help the country get through the coronavirus crisis. It also includes almost $4 billion for elections, um, including making elections safe for, for voters and poll workers. We need that passed now because we need all of those things put in place in time for the November election. So call your senators about the HEROES Act, please. Really important. Oh, she said, please. You can't resist that. <laughs> um, what What's your reason for hope this week, Mariah? My reason for hope this week was actually the training to win event over the weekend, which, you know, a couple thousand people participated in. It's very difficult times. People are distracted and rightly so. But we had thousands of people willing to give up half of a Saturday to sit in front of their computers and learn how to give up more Saturdays <laughs> as effectively as possible. So um, for the organizers of that event and the people who attended, they are truly my heroes, speaking of Heroes Act. Um, mm. And that's my reason for hope. And I'm excited that listeners on this podcast who weren't able to make that training will get to hear in a couple of weeks the incredible discussion we had at the end with leaders of the resistance organizations that are are leading the way. Yeah, it was an amazing panel with Reggie Hubbard from Move On, uh, Ethan Todras Whitehill, one of the co-founders of Swing Left, Rita Bosworth, um, one of the co-founders of Sister District, and Leah Greenberg from Indivisible, and uh, of course our friend Emiliana Goreca from the Women's March, Los Angeles. It was just an inspiring panel, and uh, we'll release it as a podcast in a few weeks, so you guys will be able to hear it if you if you missed it. Great. And what gives you, what's giving you hope today, Steve? Today, Stacey Abrams is giving me mm. hope 
because she is on the front lines of the most important fights right now. And that's Mm -hmm. uh, with both of her organizations, Fair Fight, which is the fight against voter suppression and making sure that the ballot is accessible for everyone, and Fair Count, which is her work to make sure that everyone is counted in the census. And these are the most important things that we should all be paying attention to and working on. And she's a leader in that and so many other things. So she's my reason for hope right now. Let's make sure that everybody gets to share in your reason for hope and uh, listen to the interview. After serving for 11 years in the Georgia House of Representatives, seven as Democratic leader, in 2018, Stacey Abrams became the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia, winning more votes than any other Democrat in the state's history. She was the first Black woman to become the gubernatorial nominee for a major party in the U.S., and she was the first Black woman to deliver a response to the State of the Union. Leader Abrams launched Fair Fight to ensure every American has a voice in our election system and Fair Count to ensure accuracy in the 2020 census and greater participation in civic engagement. Also a best-selling author, her latest book is called Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America. We are so excited to join that fight and to have Leader Abrams joining us today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Such an honor and a pleasure. And you're the absolute perfect guest for really what the entire country, or at least our the Democrats in the country are worried about right now is is how we protect our vote. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about all the ways that Republicans make voting difficult, if not impossible, for people of color. Could you run through the main voter suppression tactics and talk about how Fair Fight is fighting against that? Sure. So let's start with understanding the taxonomy of voter suppression. Uh, voter suppression is when you as a state or a government actor or a party work to prevent or discourage people from voting, not from picking your candidate or not picking the other candidate, but to actually prevent or discourage the act of voting. Mm -hmm. And with that as sort of the baseline, then there are three general areas of action. The first is making it difficult to register or stay on the rolls. This matters because it's the point of entry to participation in our democracy. There's only one state in the country that does not require voter registration. That's North Dakota. Everywhere else, you've got to register to vote. And so if there's difficulty in registering, and when that is compounded by being able to be taken off of the rolls, purged, because you chose not to vote, then that impedes your ability to participate, and thus you are being prevented from voting. The second is, can you cast a ballot? And that group of bad actions include voter ID laws that are suppressive. And let's think about this. This isn't just, do you have an ID? It's, do you have an ID that has an address that by law you cannot actually receive? Or do you have to provide paperwork that by law you cannot provide? Or that is so expensive or difficult to receive that you are precluded from participation. So it's not just voter ID. Every state has voter ID. It is how restrictive is the identification you're allowed to use. Mm -hmm. It's also do polling places allow you to come and cast your ballot. The closure of polling places, more than 1,600 
by just the nine states of the former Confederacy. Right. Uh, the uh, evisceration of the Voting Rights Act secluded thousands of people from being able to cast ballots. In Georgia alone, it's estimated that between 54 and 85,000 Georgians were not physically able to vote in 2018 because of polling place closures. Multiply that across the states where we have watched polling place closures block people from participating. And then does your ballot actually count? Absentee ballots are going to be a big conversation. I'm sure we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you have a number of states that make it impossible to get access to an absentee ballot unless you meet a very narrow set of criteria, usually either being over the age of 65 or having a disability. Uh, luckily, in this uh, year, we are now at about 42 states plus the uh, District of Columbia that have decided that the pandemic is a viable excuse. But that still means there are eight states where you are still limited in your ability to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. You have a number of states that do not permit uh, you to vote early. And so you've got a lot of constraints on who can go and vote. And then another one is the use of provisional ballots as a way to disenfranchise typically voters of color. And that happens when you go into a polling place and they tell you, well, we can't find you on the rolls or you didn't do something right. You don't really know what they're talking about. So they hand you this piece of paper and say, just fill it out. And they rarely tell you that you have to come back within three days to cure which, you know, whatever challenge they may have um, presumed you had. Mm -hmm. And that tends to disproportionately affect communities of color. And then going back to absentee ballots, you have restrictions on how you can return them. Uh, you have issues of signature matching, which is this junk science notion that someone who can, you know, match with credibility your signature to some piece of paper you once signed long ago, right. even though our signatures change not only from year to year, they change from implement to implement, whether you're using a pencil or a pen, whether you're writing on paper or on parchment or on a, you know, one of the little plastic screens. And so that's the universe of challenge. So my signature has evolved from actual letters to basically a squiggle with a line in it. So <laughs> exactly. I, my, my, Comment is my signature changes from CVS to Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so what Fair Fight does is we we understand that this taxonomy, these three methods of preventing you or discouraging you from voting exist in almost every state. But in the states we're most concerned about, it is a malignancy. It is a malevolence hmm. as opposed to a benign just misunderstanding of what should happen. And so we have really targeted those 18 states where we know voter suppression will determine the outcome of who holds the White House, who wins the Senate, whether we hold the House, and whether we flip those chambers down ballot, state legislative chambers that will determine redistricting for the next decade. Mm, we right. do that through litigation. We work with, uh, we sued here in Georgia, and we work with groups around the country, especially working with Mark Elias, who's just been doing yeoman's work. Mm -hmm. bringing a lot of states into the fold of voter protection and other uh, C4 and political groups helping make sure that the right to vote is real. We have worked with legislation. We were able to compel legislation or help support legislation in states like South Carolina and Nevada and New Hampshire to help address some of these challenges. And we do advocacy. And I think that's the most important. We need tens of thousands of Americans especially those living in states without aggressive voter suppression, to step up and to help states where voter suppression will be used to change the outcome of the election 
We need those folks to be a part of our army of good, our army of voter protection, because the Republicans have threatened to raise an army of 50,000 to do voter intimidation. Right. Yeah, I was talking um, with my wife earlier about the attack on vote by mail, and she was she was saying, doesn't vote by mail typically favor Republicans? Aren't Republicans better at returning those ballots? Why why is this attack on vote by mail going to benefit them? And it's because of that army that is uh, set up to intimidate voters at the poll. Trump wants people to go to the polls. They want to encounter long lines and intimidation and all those tactics. If it's easy for them to vote by mail, then you know we have a level playing field. Everyone has access to the vote. Exactly. The, the question, the follow up there is how do we plug into that? So, you know, we, we have a job for advocacy. What's the best way for our volunteers to help with that? Fairfight2020.org. You can sign up and become a volunteer. We will then route you to the right folks uh, who will need your help. And just to give a few examples, we were in Wisconsin during their primary. So we launched Fairfight 2020 in August of 2019 so that we would be in place for all of the primaries. And because we were on the ground in Wisconsin, as the rules for voting changed literally day to day, mm. we were able to deploy volunteers. We worked, we were embedded in the Democratic Party of Georgia, sorry, Democratic Party of Wisconsin with Ben Wickler. And they were able to send out messages to answer questions, to run a hotline. And it was the first time they'd had voter protection that early. We were able to do the same thing here in Georgia. We sent out more than 900,000 text messages and mm-hmm. calls to ensure participation. And despite the debacle that was the Georgia election, we actually saw unprecedented participation by vote by mail and by communities that typically did not participate in primaries. Wow. You yourself, when you ran for governor of Georgia, were the victim of voter suppression tactics, meaning that you didn't win the race because of rampant voter suppression tactics that were put into place there. And you've been very open about how frustrating that experience was. A lot of people would would take a break after that, but you jumped right back into the fray with Fair Count and Fair Fight last year. And we've had a lot of questions that people have sent in about why you chose to focus on that instead of running for office again, maybe running for one of the the Senate seats in Georgia. Can you talk about your calculation there and, and your feelings around experiencing the outcome of voter suppression firsthand? Sure. Voter suppression sucks. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to be governor, particularly given how inept our governor has proven himself to be on a host of issues and yes. you know, the malfeasance he's demonstrated on others. The residents but, of Georgia would like you to be governor right now as well. I would, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I have an atypical resume in that I have been in public office, but I've also run companies and mm-hmm. run nonprofits. I worked in the bureaucracy as a deputy city attorney. I believe in doing work. Like There are things I would like to fix. There are policies I would like to see come to fruition. There are challenges I want to address. I do not believe you have to be in public office to address them. Mm. And thus, I run for the offices I believe will help me best tackle the challenges that I, I want to be part of fixing. Running for the state legislature was critical to me because I believe that for many of the challenges 
that particularly are pervasive in the South, governors are critical parts of that solution. And the state legislature has outsized authority over how communities are, are served. Mm-hmm. I worked for a mayor who, unfortunately, for every good thing we did, we helped. I was the deputy city attorney who helped pass a living wage for Atlanta in the early 2000s. It was immediately overturned by the state legislature through what's called preemption. And so I ran for the state legislature in part because I wanted to be part of solving for how cities in the South or in, you know, in communities where you can be, you know, overridden by state government. I wanted to be a part of that government. And because I know governors have extraordinary authority over our lives Mm -hmm. and that's a job that matters to me. And it's a job that could let me do and tackle the issues that matter to me most, education, economic opportunity, the environment, criminal justice reform. We can do the litany. Running for the U.S. Senate and even more recently running for the U.S. House to replace Congressman Lewis, Congress has an extraordinary responsibility for setting the laws of the land, but it is an inexact solution to the challenges I'm most concerned about. There is a distance between the daily travails that often assail the communities I'm most focused on. Mm -hmm. And often when there is federal action, it is to correct state action. I would prefer to correct that action up front. Mm -hmm. And more than that, I I don't necessarily like the legislature. (laughs) I I was a part of it. (laughs) I'm privileged to be in it. It What's not to love? (laughs) It's a very specific skill set. It's one I wanted to absolutely put in my quiver. I wanted to make sure I understood how it works because I think you're a better executive if you know how the legislative branch operates. But what I've learned from being the lawyer for the city council, being a member of the state legislature and working fairly closely with Congress over the last few years, Mm -hmm. this is a scalable set of skills. So once you learn the legislative machinations, you've got the skill set. It's just a matter of scale and a matter of topic. I prefer the executive branch of things because I prefer the direct action of delivery of service. That's what I do. That's why I start companies. That's why I start nonprofits. It's why I want to be governor. It's why I one day will want to run for higher office, but I will do it in the executive side because that's the most direct path to the delivery of services that drive me every day to be in this work. So being part of the bureaucracy wasn't that exciting for you. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I know you're being funny, but I, and, and you are clever. But my, <laughs> She's very clever. But my point was when I was a bureaucrat, that's actually one of the reasons I ran for the legislature, because there are a lot of people who have been in successive elective offices that then run for higher office. There are very few people who actually were bureaucrats responsible for executing those rules mm-hmm. that then run for office. I was one of them. So when I sat in the legislature, I could actually speak authentically to certain bills they were trying to pass by saying, nah, that does not, it doesn't work the way you think it works. That's not right. how that happens. And so I actually was, I think I benefited from my time in bureaucracy. But one problem I had was that I was a bureaucrat. I couldn't make people do anything. I, was, <laughs> I couldn't demand that they take a better step or that they do things in a different way because I was constrained by the rules that had been passed by legislators and signed by governors and mayors. And so 
I found early on in my life that you can either try to convince people to change what they do, or you can be the one to do it. And mm -hmm. I've opted for the latter. Well, I think many of us are very excited about uh, the future when you do run for a higher executive office. That's um, very tantalizing to many of us. So we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, let's talk more about the work that you are doing right now. You mentioned uh, in your bullet points about voter suppression, the first thing was access to voter registration. Mm -hmm. It's never been easy, especially for rural and poor Americans. And voters of color are two times as likely to register at a drive. But due to COVID-19, some states like Florida, for instance, have made those drives so hard to do that groups have given up doing them altogether. How are you reaching Americans and registering them right now during this pandemic? So the work that I've done in voter registration was primarily executed through the New Georgia Project, mm -hmm. which I founded in 2014. I actually stepped back from the New Georgia Project. It has a fantastic CEO named Nse Ufot. She has run the organization day to day since 2016, and has, it's it now a standalone organization since 2017. She's actually they, joining our, our show in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited about that. I'll tell you all about the fantastic work she's doing. <laughs> I will plug her by saying that they have managed to continue that outreach because it's not just the physical drives. What The reason communities of color are twice as likely to register through third-party efforts is that those third parties take the, the extra mile. They do the additional work to mitigate both the fear and the complication of registration. For people who grow up in communities where registration is a given, there is sort of an inherited understanding of how it works. But for a lot of folks who have lived through voter suppression or who are newly, you know, new immigrants to the United States, it can be a complex system. And particularly for communities of color in the South, you need voter registration drives and often to demystify and to, to dispel misinformation about who can register and how to do it. That's why they're so effective. And the New Georgia Project has continued. Luckily, Georgia is one of the states that has online registration. And so I know NGP is doing a lot of that work. But they've also just maintained connection to community because it's not just getting people to register. It's getting them to understand how to use that registration to change their futures. Right. Let's turn to the census now, which plays a, a huge, it's going to play a huge role. And you talked uh, about the importance of uh, the down ballot races and how hand in hand with the redistricting in the census, those are going to have a, a big impact. But now we've just learned this week that the census is going to be ending a month early. We know that the Trump administration is trying new ways to try to exclude uh, undocumented residents from from participating in the, or being counted in the census. So we're in a little bit of a, an emergency mode with it right now. Um, what can we do now that we know it's ending early and it's continuing to be under attack from the Trump administration? Um, how do we make sure that communities of color are counted and as many people as possible are counted now that we have a ticking clock? So I, I begin with a few things. One, so we're at about 62% response rate. So about 40% of America hasn't responded. But when you look into that 40%, the lag rate is that 25% of Native Americans have not been counted. 15, 14% of African Americans are behind. Uh, it's 12% of Latinos and 2% of the API community. 
And so it is largely communities of color that are in the undercounted or uncounted categories. The original timing for the census was that you get your forms starting in March. Census day technically was April 1st. And then we have what's called the non-response follow-up operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's NARFU, which is <laughs> It sounds like a Dr. Seuss character. <laughs> it really does. Uh, and so NARFU was supposed to begin on May 14th. It was delayed by COVID until August 11th. So they've had some testers that have gone out, but the real enumerator process isn't going to start till August 11th. Well, originally it was going to run from May 14th through July 31st, 75 days. Mm -hmm. It is the most important part of the census for those communities because we know every one of those communities I just listed that's lagging behind, they historically lag behind and they need the enumerators to go into their communities in part because they don't get the information. They tend to be more transitory. So the mail that would have come to where they lived before did not make it to the new apartment where they live now. There are a host of reasons for it. And there's a lot of distrust that has been fomented by the Trump administration through the citizenship issue, but also through conservative groups that have been spreading misinformation about participation in the census for the last few years, because they know that non-participation in the census as one of their researchers put it, makes the United States look whiter and more Republican. So mm-hmm. that's that's the problem. So it was supposed to last until July 31st, 75 days. Well, because they aren't starting until August 11th, and because they intend to artificially end it on September 30th, they're going to use 45 days as opposed to 75 days. So a 40% decrease in how much time they're going to spend. Mm -hmm. They are going to spend that much less time, but the number of people they have to reach is much larger. And we need to be, we need to be panicked about this for three Mm. things. One is that it will undercount those communities as a just baseline metric, because when you have less time to do more work, the work does not get done. So that's the first problem. Right. The second problem is that the Census Bureau uses what's called imputation in order to figure out who they miss. In 2010, imputation was used to cover about a 1% population that didn't get counted. And that 1% of that 1%, 25% were African Americans, which means that when you use imputation, it is often being used to count people of color who otherwise did not get counted. But what happens with imputation and with proxy, so it's called imputation, there's proxy uh, responses. What they do is they ask people who live in neighborhoods around you that did respond what race you are, what you look like, what your, your family looks like in your house. They may tell the truth or they may lie. And imputation is even worse because imputation uses responsive census tracts, read white, to guess what the race of the non-responsive tracts are. And they tend to impute into that community the characteristics of the community that responded. So if you live in a gentrified community, if you live in a minority community, they're going to guess that you're white. If the majority that responded were white, they're going to impute that everyone else is white, which means you erase communities of color. Hmm. So they get erased. for the. So we're not going to be able to count them. We're going to guess and we're going to guess wrong. And the consequences are that for redistricting, partisan gerrymandering was 
determined to be permissible by the Supreme Court in 2019. The only form of gerrymandering that remains unconstitutional is racial gerrymandering. Well, guess what happens if you erase racial communities? Then you can do whatever you want because for the purposes of the law, they don't exist. If they're not included in the census, you cannot then sue and say, here are pictures of all the black and brown people who live in the census tract that now is skewed Republican because of how they drew it. Because according to the census, if you are not included in the census, when you go to court, you can't bring in pictures. You can't bring in data. You can only bring in what the census says is true. Mm. So uh, how do we fight against that? What do we do about it? So the work we've been doing through Fair Count has been to, one, help increase the accuracy of the census. So I created Fair Fight to fight against voter suppression, Mm -hmm. and I created Fair Count to fight against an inaccurate census. So we've been working across the country with multiple organizations, raising awareness. I've been incredibly grateful for the support and the hard work being done by groups like the Leadership Conference, the NAACP, the National Council of Negro Women, the Urban League, all of these groups, Voto Latino, groups across the country are doing this work. But what we need now is congressional action. Congress can mandate that the census count has to continue until October 31st. That's the standard practice that gives us back the 75 days. Mm-hmm. That's what we determine. So we need folks listening to this podcast to call Congress, call your state rep, call your U.S. representatives and your senators and demand that they extend the census count. Because here's why it matters to everybody, regardless of what race you are. The money for services in our communities are based on that count. And so if you live in a community where your school district is of mixed race, but they don't count a lot of the kids of color who are also poor, then those kids and those resources never come to your school. And so if you're living in a nice or a middle-class area where things are doing okay, if those kids get erased, the resources that pay for those children will disappear. If you live in a COVID-19 community that is being unfairly battered by COVID-19, if you live in a rural community where your hospitals are closing, if they don't count who's there, and they erase that count, then the resources that follow those members of your community, those dollars disappear. So you may not, you may want to win the election, but if you lose the money that comes with your community members, all of us are harmed. So we should all be concerned about this, regardless of race, regardless of politics. If we don't count people, then the resources that help improve our communities disappear. Great well, call to action. Yeah, we'll keep that as our as a call to action. And uh, thank you for articulating so well how important this is. It's just, it is, uh, you know, all alarm bells should be going off right now. We have a couple of quick questions. Um, recently, our Swing Left college team of fellows and network leads got together for a conference. They're getting ready for the fall semester and building infrastructure across Georgia and other super states to mobilize college students. And they submitted some questions for you. Sure. So I'm going to play the question and and let you respond to it. Hi, Leader Abrams. My name is Tiana Singleton, a Swing Left College Fellow and Rising Junior at your alma mater, Spelman College. Advocacy can take a significant toll on your mental health, especially when you are constantly countered with obstacles that halt progression and change. I wanted to ask you, how have you navigated the world of politics and advocacy while taking care of your mental health? And how do you mentally overcome setbacks? Thank you. 
Thank you, Tiana, for the question. I recognize that winning is not always going to happen. Uh, the way I think about it, and I talk about it in the book, is that my metric for victory looks different because of the experiences I've had. And so I always level set for myself before I start. And I set multiple goals, not just getting the title, but sometimes it's about changing the composition. The work we did in Georgia in 2018, I may not have become governor, but we transformed the electorate of our state. We engaged communities that had never been engaged. And so I, part of my mental health you know, red regime is that I recognize the things I did get done, even if I didn't get everything. But I also give myself space to grieve. It was devastating not winning. It was devastating watching tens of thousands of Georgians be denied their agency, but it was also devastating just not getting not getting the victory that I, I thought we had earned. And particularly to not win in a time when suppression was the challenge. And so here's what I do. I read a lot. I watch an inordinate amount of television <laughs> and I give myself permission to, to cycle through the stages of grief, knowing I might come back to some cycles more than others. I like anger. Uh, I internalize it differently and display it differently, but it's a fuel for me. Being righteously indignant on behalf of those who are cheated helps me wake up in the morning and get things done. But Sometimes I need to just curl up and read a good book or watch another episode of Doctor Who or Star Trek and <laughs> single, and that also makes me happy. All right, let me play this one from Julian. Hi, Leader Abrams. I'm Julian Panetta, and I'm a Swing Left College Fellow at Georgia State University. And I wanted to ask you, what are some words of wisdom you might have to young organizers who aspire to grow and develop as leaders in a current political climate filled with some discouraged young voters? Thank you so much. I start by recognizing that voting is not a panacea. It's not going to be a, a magic pill that makes things better. Hmm. Voting is a process. And like any disease, the disease of systemic racism, the disease of structural inequities, the disease of voter suppression, the disease of erasure, we have to keep at it. And it can be discouraging if you think that you have failed because change didn't come with your casting of a ballot. Mm -hmm. But when we think about it instead as a treatment, as a process, then we become more nimble and more able to withstand the disappointment. Protesting in the streets is absolutely necessary because it lifts up the issues for public consumption. Voting is critical because it puts those demands into policy. And it is the way in a democracy we administer the treatment that we need, the chemotherapy, the radiation, the, the regimen that will make us healthier. And I remember where I came from and where I started that, you know, as I come from slaves and sharecroppers and domestic workers, and I know that because of their persistence, I am. And my requirement and my responsibility is to keep trying. I may not fix everything, but I am damned if I do not try. Hmm. Um, I mean, that would be the perfect note to end on, but <laughs> we have one more because it was so powerful, yeah. of course, but we have um, one more question that we ask all of our, our, 
our podcast guests. And that is, uh, what gives you the most hope for our future? What gives me the most hope is that I, I read our constitution and I know the stories of our people. Where we began tells us what we are capable of and where we are now shows us what we've been willing to do to get there. I have hope because I know we've got farther to go, but we've got the capacity to get there. Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. It helps other activists and volunteers so much. Share on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. You can always get more on our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, you can find ways to volunteer from there. We really appreciate you being here with us every week, and we will be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. MSW.